as well. Good morning and happy new year. My name's Hans. I'm one of the pastors here. How about we pray and we'll jump into Ruth 1. Let's pray. Our Father God, I pray as we look at your word this morning, I pray that you would speak through it and uh, you would help us to see uh, who we're meant to be and who you are. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder what your New Year's resolutions are. I wonder if it is finally to get that six-pack you had when you were 20, right? Or maybe it is to improve your diet and eat better. Or maybe it is to read a book a week or get out of debt or something like that. I remember asking a friend... um, uh, earlier this week, uh, we were texting back and forth, and I said, oh, what are your New Year's resolutions? And he said this, to be standing and functioning with my faith intact at Christmas this year. To be standing and functioning with my faith intact at Christmas this year. And when I was thinking, when I read that, I was like, that's not really inspirational, is it? It's not this kind of thing that is an aspirational goal to have. It seems like all he wants is to get through this next year. And I thought, man, surely he could aim for more. But then I remembered last year for him, a year full of tragedy and crises. And I actually thought that's actually a very, very wise goal. To actually get through this year, to get to Christmas standing on our own two feet with our faith intact. You you see, why is that wise? Because because your life really matters. Whether you've got a six-pack or or read 52 books or or whatever it is, that doesn't really matter. But your faith matters. And here's, here's a bit of reality. There's going to be crises in 2024. There's going to be very hard times for you and for me in 2024. And so we need some realism when it comes to looking at this new year. You you see, one of the things that causes people to abandon their faith or take a step back is when they're unprepared for the things that the year throws at them. And so I wonder if you are prepared for the things that may come this year for you. If you were to take a, a, uh, the DeLorean from Back to the Future and go back a year, and you were to interview all the people here and say, what are you expecting this year? I dare say the tragedies that so many of us experienced last year, we, we wouldn't have expected, and yet they, ca- they came. And we don't know what 2024 is going to bring, but we need to be ready for them. We need to be ready for the things that come. See, interwoven into our stories, we need a theology that will help us deal with whatever 2024 comes or brings. And so that's why we're looking at Ruth as we start the year. Because Ruth, as Haran said, is about normal people. And Ruth 1 is all about uh, normal people going through normal tragedies. And what we're going to see is that there's two, two very big responses to normal tragedies in this passage. And we're going to see how people respond to God. 
And the question is, for you and for me, when tragedy comes, how do you respond? And how do you respond to God? Do you respond with faith or do you respond with bitterness? Because as we're going to see, they're the two responses as we look at this passage. We're going to, look at, we're going to see three things in this passage. We're going to see when crises come, how will you respond to the crisis? And finally, how will you interpret the crisis? When crises come, how will you respond to the crisis? And finally, how will you interpret the crisis? Let's have a look at the first point, when crises come. Have a look at verse 1 with me of chapter 1 of Ruth. It says this, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Everything here in this verse says, hey, this is not a fantasy. You read the whole book of Ruth, and it's kind of this nice love story. But this is a historical family, an ordinary family, but a normal one. But do you see when it's happening? It's in the days when the judges rule. In, in this period, this is a period of, of social unheaval, upheaval. This is a time when, when in Canaan, there's all these different groups of people, and they're kind of fighting a lot. But this is also a time, as we're going to look at, when we look at the book of Judges later this year, this is a time where there was just moral turmoil in Israel. You see, the problem was they were meant to go into Canaan, but Canaan got into them. And one of the ways that God disciplined his people in the Old Testament is by giving them a famine helping them see that actually they've walked away from God and to wake up. But actually this family doesn't do that. Did you notice how a man from Bethlehem in Judah goes to Moab? Moab, we read in Numbers 25, was a group of people that tried to take Israel away from God. They're the enemies of God. They're the people that God says don't deal with, and yet that's where they're going. But you see, there's two, two things that are ironic here. The word for Bethlehem means house of food, and there's none, so they're going. But also, the man's name, Elimelech, means God is my king, and yet he's making decisions without God in mind. And so he goes to the country of Moab. Have a look at verse 2. It says, The man's name was uh, Elimelech, the, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah, the other Ruth, after they had lived there about 10 years, both Marlon and Killian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Here they do something once again which they shouldn't have done. The boys married Moabites. And once again, in the Old Testament law, this is something that they shouldn't have done, but that's what they do. And did you notice what happens? 10 years, they are barren. They don't have any kids once again, I dare say this is judgment from God. And then the boys die. And you can see the hardship here, once again in verse 5. 
both Marlon and Killian also died. And the author repeats himself, kind of. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. In the original Hebrew, the word for sons there is not just male sons or adult sons. It is boys. Because she is standing at the graves of her two sons, weeping, thinking of all the things that they enjoyed together. Thinking of all the great times, how they grew up, how they were so fun. And now they're all dead. And she is without any protection. No men in her life to earn, money, earn for her. No one to protect her. She is all alone. All alone. No hopes on the horizon. She's a stranger in a foreign land, a victim of life and death. Kind of a depressing way to start a book, isn't it? It's not the kind of fun, happy way of starting a book. In just a few short sentences, it says, this, li- this woman's life has been ripped apart. I remember when I was uh, in my late teens, I went and heard a preacher. And the preacher talked about, if you are a Christian, if you trust in God, you have a cocoon of God's love around you. And, and, the, and the problems of this life can't hurt you. The, the, the things, the tragedies of this life won't interfere in your life. And I can remember thinking back then, oh, that's just bull. That's just wrong. And, and I said that because I, I, I was taught the Bible, and the Bible never teaches that. But 20 years have passed, more than 20 years have passed. I'm 43 now, and I know that experientially. There's been things that have happened in my life where uh, it's just been hugely painful. I have lost people who I loved. I have failed in many different ways. People have hurt me. And I dare say you've experienced those things too. You, you see, the reason why Ruth 1, 1, 1-5 is so important is because it's very normal people going through, of their time, very normal tragedies. Because I think what God is saying is that Suffering is actually normal. It doesn't mean that, that you're suffering, if you are suffering, either in the past or now or in the future. It doesn't mean that God is angry with you. It doesn't mean that God is upset with you or you've done something wrong. No, suffering, unfortunately, is part and parcel of people of faith living in a sinful and broken world. That's all it is. And that's really important to remember because when suffering comes, it's very easy, as we're going to say, it's very easy to look at God and go, there must be something wrong here. And yet, there probably isn't. It's just normal people living in a normal and sinful world. You see, faith in God doesn't take suffering away But faith in God gives you the resources to deal with your suffering. Because you know, if you trust in the Lord Jesus, you know that Jesus rose again from the dead. If you trust in the Lord Jesus, you know that his resurrection opened the door to eternity. 
If you trust in the Lord Jesus, you know that one day you will stand before him and all the tears you have cried, he is going to wipe away. You know that if you trust in the Lord Jesus, he's going to wipe away all your tears and say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. You know that if you trust in the Lord Jesus, you are going to be a place where, yes, the tragedies of this life may be remembered, but as C.S. Lewis says, all the tragedies will be turned into a glory. Suffering is normal for people of faith. But the question is, how are you going to respond to suffering? How are you going to respond to the crisis that comes in your life? And that's the second point. Let's have a look at verse 6 with me. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on, a ro- on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Notice here, just in this first verse, in, in, in verse 6, how God has been so gracious to Naomi and his people. Notice, have a look in verse 6. It says, first of all, that Naomi heard. You're probably thinking that's not a big deal, but back in this day, it's a huge deal. Moab and Judah were separated by dozens of kilometers, right? And they didn't have phone or internet or anything. So so it could be that if you are in Moab, you may not know what's happening in Bethlehem, but Naomi heard. Secondly, what did she hear? She heard that the Lord had come to the aid, that the Lord is moving, that God has heard the cries and he's moving. Notice, but, but the third thing, Who's he come to the aid of? He's come to the aid of his people. Remember, this is the time of judges. This is the time when the the Israelites were meant to go into Canaan, but Canaan got into them, and they're living in a way that God doesn't want them to live. And yet God is being gracious by providing them food. He has not left them. And finally, did you know that God, can you see how God has given them the ability to go back. Travelling for three women in this time is not only notoriously difficult, but actually something very bad could happen. And the fact that they got safe passage back says that God is actually being gracious to them. And what does Naomi do to her daughters or say, or daughters-in-law? Have a look at verse 8 with me. Then Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and and they wept aloud and, and, and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. Naomi goes back to them and and she's showing them great kindness. But did you notice that there's two things that she says that that are remarkable here? Remember, she's talking to Moabite Esther. She's not talking to Israelites here. And yet she says two things here. First of all, she says, may God show you kindness. But where is she thinking that God is going to show show them kindness? Back in Moab. The whole point is that God is not a a God who's just the God of the Israelites. He's the God of the whole world. But not only that, it's implying that God loves to show kindness to the most unlikely people. Even Moabites. 
God is a God who loves to show kindness even to the most unlikely people. She says, go back, but they refuse. Have a look at verse 11 with me. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons? Who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought I was, there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband uh, tonight and then we gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. He's saying, think practically, girls. Uh, look, I've gone through menopause, right? To be frank, I'm not going to have another kid. But even if I did, even if I wasn't, you know, this old, even if I, I got married and I had a kid, would you wait 20 years and then you'd be 40? You wouldn't do that. This is crazy. No, go back. Go back. And notice what she says about God. She is saying, actually, that God's hand has turned against her. And what we see there is Orpah in verse 14 says, okay, you're right, I'm going to go back. And can I just say, this is a logical choice for her to make. This is a logical choice that if anyone with pretty much half a brain would make. But Ruth makes a very illogical choice. Have a look at verse 15. Luke said to Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you from me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Ruth's words here are some of the greatest statements of friendship we find in the whole of literature. With radical self-sacrifice, she does something that defies logic. She says to Naomi, I'm going to abandon every base of security that I have. I'm going to leave my native homeland. I'm going to leave my people. And I'm going to leave even my religion. And I'm going to be with you. And did you notice what she's, what, what she's thinking is in her future? Hardship and death. I'm going to be with you to hardship and death. What a friend Ruth is. But what we see in these few verses are two different responses to what God is doing through all this. I don't know if you've uh, gone with someone and you have uh, had a totally different response to something you've both experienced. I remember when Kate and I were first married, I took her to a band I love to see. They were called the Bodacious Cowboys. It's a Steely Dan covers band. It was at the basement, which is closed. And we were sitting very close to the speakers, which was awesome. I've still got hearing loss because of it, but it was amazing, right? 
And I can remember after one of the songs, and there were two of the, two of the best guitarists in Sydney on their, you know, Peter Northcote, Rex Go. I was, I was in my element. I was loving after one of, the, one of this great song. I turned to, turned to Kate. I said, wasn't that awesome? And she goes, no. It was too loud, and there was all these instruments going everywhere. I, just, I didn't like it at all. And as, as, we walked, as we walked back to the car, I can remember Kate saying to me, I'm glad you really enjoyed it, but I really didn't. So, so you can have two different responses to the same thing, can't you? To the same event. Or take sarsaparilla. I hate sarsaparilla. I think in hell, people will be drinking sarsaparilla. But Kate's family loves it. In fact, I love Coke, and Kate's family thinks it's hilarious at Christmas time to swap my cup of Coke with sarsaparilla because they look alike, and me to drink a little bit of sarsaparilla, and everyone laughs. I just think her family obviously hates me then, right? You know? So, so there's two different responses to the one thing. And here in, 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 this, in this tragic story, what we see is Naomi and Ruth have totally different responses to what God is doing and to the suffering that God has sovereignly walking them through. Do you see Naomi's response? Have a look at verse 13 again with me. Have a look. Second half of verse 13. No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. When she thinks of all the things that, that has gone wrong, she is thinking, well, this is obvious that, that God hates me, that, that God doesn't want to have anything to do with me, that, that God is a, against me. I don't, and therefore, I don't want, it's almost like she's saying, I don't want to have anything to do with him. She thinks that God may be great, but he's not good. And yet, let's have a look at, how Ruth responds. Have a look at verse 16 again. She says, Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. Today, if, uh, if someone becomes a Christian, we say, "Oh, well, When did you pray the prayer? Or, or, or tell us about your, your testimony. Back in this day, if you converted to a religion of a person, you you would say, their God has become my God. Their people has become my people. Naomi experienced the suffering that Ruth has gone through. And Ruth, instead of being repelled by God, she comes near him and puts her faith in him. And I want to ask you, when suffering comes, how do you think of God? When suffering comes, do you go, well, God is inflicting me with all this suffering. Obviously, he hates me. The thing is, in my 20-odd years of being a pastor, I have seen so many Christians, so many people of faith who have walked down that road, and they said, obviously, God hates me. My marriage did not work out and we got divorced. Therefore, God is against me. 
that person that I love, they died suddenly or tragically or, or, or too early. Therefore, God hates me. I prayed for God, that God would bless my family. And obviously, he hasn't. And then I've seen people who have gone through tragedy and they're full of joy. When I think about those two things, I think about my grandmothers. I love both my grandmothers. My Aussie grandmother lived a a very hard life here in Australia. And you, are, you talk with my, you talk, when she was around, you, you talk with my grandmother about her hard life and God, and she just scowled at God. She was angry and bitter towards God like anything. My Danish grandmother, on the other hand, my Danish grandmother, this is one of the things that happened in her life. As she was going uh, to get married in the Second World War in Denmark, she was stopped at a, a, a place where Nazis stopped everyone. And she was back on the back of a horse-drawn cart with all her presents around her. I'm not sure why presents around her, but anyway, they were. They, and they started unwrapping the presents, right? And one, there was knives in one, and one of the Nazis um, got his hand cut and blood spurted out all over her dress. She hadn't walked down the aisle at this point. And so my grandmother walked down the aisle to her wedding to be married to my grandfather with Nazi blood on her dress. Can you imagine how much that would destroy your wedding? And yet, if you talk to my grandmother, and unfortunately you can't because she's gone to be with Jesus, she had so much joy. Through all the tragedies that she went through, and there were many, she had so much joy what is the difference? My, my Danish grandmother kept at the center of her life the objective things that God had done. She, she realized that God was for her, not because of her own circumstances, but because of what Jesus had done for her. That Jesus had died and rose again for her. That shows that she is loved. Not, not the things that she's gone through, The the fact that she's got a hope beyond this world shows that she is loved. Not the fact that she went down the aisle to marry my grandfather with a stained dress. See, her eyes were lifted always through her tragedy to the objective reality of God's love for her. And when you go through tragedy if you focus on what you are going through and you judge whether God loves you based on your circumstance, you'll always find that you'll think, well, God obviously doesn't love me. Because you're, you're judging all of it based on your subjective circumstances, which are painful, and I'm not trying to take any, anything away from your pain. But if you go through those tragic circumstances remembering what God has done, remembering that God loved you so much that he sent Jesus to die for you. And that's the objective reality of what God thinks about you and and God's love. What that will give you is stealing your spine. That you will be be able to go through the dark times in life knowing 
that God still loves you even though your heart is breaking. See, the difference, I think, between Ruth and Naomi is Naomi focused on the reality of what she was going through. I dare say Ruth lifted her eyes up. She probably heard the stories of how God saved his people in the Exodus, how God gave them this land. And she thought, well, that's the God, that's reality. Yes, what I'm going through is true, but that shows you who this God is. The question is, when, when crises come, how will you respond? Will you respond by remembering what God has done? Or will you just focus on the things in front of you? And finally, how will you interpret the crisis? That's the last point. Have a look at verse 19 with me. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? The word for, for stirred there is to probably buzz with excitement. So she comes back to Bethlehem uh, after being 10 years away. And people say, oh, this is, can this be Naomi? She's back. Isn't it great? But actually, no. Verse 20. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. There's a play on words here. Naomi means pleasant or nice. She's saying, don't call me pleasant anymore, call me bitter. Mara means bitter. Don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. Why? Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought uh, misfortune upon me. Notice the things that she's saying. God has done all this. God has ruined my life. God has ruined my life. But notice how all the, sorry, sorry to be a bit geeky, but did, did you notice how all the verbs are in the singular? They're always, God has done this to me, 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 I, me, me. She, she's just looking inward. And, and Naomi has just said, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be your friend till death. And, and he, sorry, Ruth said that to Naomi. And Naomi now is just going, well, it's, you know, it's me, me, me. I am suffering. She is in a world of her own pain, and that's normal, but it is blinding her to what God is doing around her. She is, God has been giving her food, or will give her food as she comes back to Bethlehem. God has been giving her a great friend in Ruth, but she can't see that. A few years ago, I went through a ma- what, uh, what uh, my uh, counselor at the time called a major depressive episode. I called pretty close to hell. That's what I called it. And it was very, very hard. Uh, and in that time, I remember all I could think about was me. Uh, I think I turned into one of the most selfish people who has walked the face of this earth because I was trapped in a cocoon of my own grief and suffering. And there's a sense in which that is exactly what Naomi's doing. But, but you know what, what, I, what was beautiful? 
when I was going through that time, I had a church family and you guys who kept reminding me about what God has done. Uh, I remember getting a text from Haran just saying, I read this in the Bible this morning. I can't remember what he texted. He probably can't even remember sending that text, right? But I remember going, oh, okay, I need to hear this. Uh, I remember not wanting to come and you know, talk to you guys, even though I love you guys. But you guys singing so loud about the truths of the gospel, and I needed that. You, you, you see, part of the problem with suffering is it turns us inward. And it doesn't help us see the fact that God has given us a community of people. You, you see, Ruth was with Naomi. Who is with you as you suffer? Now, can you see why church is so important when we're suffering? I get for so many of us, when we, when we go through a dark time, it's very hard to come to church because we don't want to talk about it. I get it, I get it, right? I've been there, I understand that. But when we're going through suffering, we need a community of people that will help us lift our eyes towards God and what he's done. We need a community that will sing the songs of faith so that our hearts are strengthened by that. See, God may not take you through your pain quickly, but he has given you a community in the church in which to walk with you through it. And so if, if tragedy besets you this year, could you still come to church? Could you still come to growth group? Could you still be part, uh, part of our community? Would you let us remind you of the gospel? Would you let us love you like that? But also, one of the things that we're going through suffering, we need to, be very hard, we need to work very hard at noticing what God is doing. All the way through this passage, God is actually doing some great things for her. For Naomi. Verse 6. God had provided food back in Judah. He gives them a safe passage of travel. He, he then gives her welcome back into Bethlehem, not shunning. And in verse 22, did you see when it's all happening? At the start of the barley season. Not a really big deal for us, but in an agricultural season, that was a time of great hope. All the way through this passage, God is actually working. And even in your suffering and my suffering, God is still working in your life. As we read in 2 Peter, he is working in our lives to make us the people he wants us to be. I would not wish depression on anybody. But I look back on it now and go, I think I get what God was doing. He was stripping me of the sin that I needed to be stripped from. He, needed, he was making me to be more reliant on him, less arrogant and proud. And he's got a long way to go on that, I know. But, like, but that's what he was doing. God is always working in your life, even when it hurts. The question is, have you got the eyes of faith to see? 
your relationship with God is not founded primarily on your subjective experiences, what you're going through. Your relationship with God, even Naomi's relationship with God, is not based on those things. It is based on what God has done. For for Naomi, it was based on the fact that God had saved his people in the Exodus and made a people for you. It's the fact that you are saved, we are saved by what Jesus has done. That is the objective reality of your life. The objective reality is not primarily your suffering, even though it could be an objective reality. The primary objective reality is what Jesus has done and the great hope that you have. I hope that 2024 is a great year for you. I hope that you get your six-pack if that's what you want or you get out of debt or whatever it is. But I hope that through this year that you would so cling on to God that no matter what this year throws to you, that when Christmas comes, you will be standing with faith intact, trusting in the Lord Jesus, singing those great Christmas carols of Him saving you. Wouldn't that be great if everyone here, despite the experiences of 24, that was their reality at Christmas? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you are not a God who papers over the hardships of our lives. You are the God who lovingly enters into our lives, our hardships, our suffering. And you show us that we have got a great hope in in you, a great hope in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, a great hope in heaven. Lord, help us when we experience suffering not to be like Naomi who uses the suffering that she goes through as evidence of you going against her. But Lord, we pray that we would see that you have given us a community here as we suffer who will walk alongside us. That that you you are still working in the midst and even through our pain. But most of all, you have given us a great hope that goes beyond our pain in the Lord Jesus. Help us to live for him, no matter if our days are full of happiness or full of sorrow. We pray this in his name. Amen.